This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. People on the right are furious, people on the left are livid, and the political center isn't holding. There's something very wrong in Washington, D.C. The country's being run by pollsters. Few politicians are able to win the voters' trust. Blame abounds, and personal responsibility is nowhere to be found. In Politics Lost, How American Democracy Was Trivialized by People Who Think You're Stupid, Joe Klein vents, reconstructs, deconstructs, and reveals how and why our leaders are less interested in leading than they are in the permanent campaign the political life has become. Klein, a longtime Washington, D.C. journalist, is the author of five previous books, including Primary Colors and The Natural. Joe Klein, welcome to Weekly Signals. Uh, Good to be here. How are you doing today? Fine. There's only one slight Uh-oh. inaccuracy in your in your wonderful oh introduction. Um, <laughs> what I say? I although I write about Washington D.C. Okay. I um, I don't live there. I I commute in and out. Oh, very I good. Fig- I figure it's safer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, now you've been reporting though on political cl- campaigns for thirty-seven years. Am I correct on that? You betcha. Wow. Okay. And I'm going into God help me my ninth presidential campaign. Yeah. <laughs> well, now the subtitle of your book. How American Democracy Was Trivialized by People Who Think You're Stupid. Who are those people that think I'm stupid? Well, I think that uh, in the television era, over the last 40 years, uh, a whole new breed of, um, of uh, politicians have, have grown up, uh, you know, who are led by consultants uh, who, who read the polls. I mean, in, good, in, 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 in a large part, this is because in the 60s, politicians began to realize that uh, anything they said could become a national event. There was no longer any such thing as a local political meeting because of television, mm-hmm. and that because of the tremendous flow of information, they needed um, you know, experts to help them navigate uh, television and, uh, and television advertising, which came uh, right hard on the heels of uh, the realization that television was so important. And uh, those consultants and pollsters... Um, have been, uh, who are, by the way, among the most charming and irreverent and intelligent and funny people I know, ironically, have had the exact opposite effect on the political process. Uh, they have counseled caution, and they've taken all the spontaneity and humanity out of the process. And um, so I guess when I'm talking about people who think you're stupid, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking not only about politicians and consultants, uh, but also a lot of my colleagues in the media. Mm-hmm. The, in taking the spontaneity out, why exactly has that happened? Is it because they're just afraid of losing? Uh, what, what's going on with the consultants? Well, they want to control everything, and they think that they that they think that they can using the very sophisticated tools that they now have. I mean, this has been the uh, the golden age of public opinion sampling, starting in about 1970. It's gotten more and more and more sophisticated. Um, you know, the focus groups have come along, dial groups where you hand, you know, uh, a, a bunch of people a little gizmo that they hold in their hand and they can respond positively or negatively in real time to whatever a politician is saying. All of these things have led to the, um, the you know, the bizarre notion 
that they can control um, the public's perception of who a politician is um, by by editing his message down to or her message down to a few sound bites and uh, and snippets of policy position, um, and they've gotten away with it in large part because, if not stupid, we haven't cared all that much about politics for the last, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years. Uh, times have been pretty good. And, um, you know, I, na- I named a character in Primary Colors after this phenomenon, Orlando Ozio, the governor of New York. Machiavelli once said that uh, Ozio is the greatest enemy of a repu- republic. Ozio is Italian for indolence. Mm-hmm. And and since the end of World War II, we've had this unprecedented period of peace and prosperity, and um, and during that time, we've lost the habits of citizenship. Well, and and I just wanted to, what you described uh, with the uh, our little the device that allows us to make these instantaneous assessments of what what we're uh, hearing or watching is really an outgrowth of the uh, entertainment business. I remember going into one of those uh, one of those. Uh, theaters and they handed you this device and said whenever you feel good turn it to the right and feel bad turn it to the left and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that has to do with the politics too hasn't politics become kind of a product in a sense uh, the selling of we go back to i think joe joe mcginnis's book the selling joe of the mcginnis's pres- book in 1968 yeah, yeah. the selling well, of the look- president and that really isn't that a lot of what we're talking about sort of turning politicians into brand label brand names or brand products right? well uh yeah that, but but you know there has always been an entertainment aspect to politics, and mm-hmm. rightly so. Uh, there's always been an entertainment aspect to leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I, I think that what is, what's changed in, uh, in, in recent years mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is that uh, so much of this has become about performance, mm-hmm. and so little of it has, has been about leadership. You know, in 1968, the, uh, you know, the, the Nixon campaign that Joe McGinnis wrote about, um, the, uh, the media meister was none other than Roger Ailes, right. who went on to, uh, you know, to invent the Fox News Network. And at that point, Ailes said, in the future, they're all going to have to be performers. Right. And, uh, and he turned Nixon into a product, the new Nixon, and he turned him into a showman. He... <laughs> <laughs> he had these uh, phony town meetings that now have become a staple of of, uh, of presidential politics, where he would pack the audience with Nixon supporters. Uh, you know, in, in 2004, George Bush held a slew of those, and he didn't take a hostile question from a civilian during the entire course of the, the campaign. Yeah. Um, which is, I suppose, progress of a sort, because um, because Nixon, um, Ailes believed that it was much better theater for Nixon to field questions from hostile questioners um, so that he could show his strength. Nixon hated it. He was always ticked off at Ailes, but Ailes thought it worked. And, and, and that's, in a way, that shows you how things have evolved over time. From, you know, even the, the, the most, you know, Every stray moment of spontaneity has been bleached from the system. Even debates where they're supposed to be thinking on their feet, they hold debate press prep sessions before, they videotape them, and then they show the videotapes to people with those little gizmos in their hands. And, um, uh, you know, and, and the things that work, they keep, and the things that, they, that don't work, they, uh, they don't say in the debate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that happened to John Kerry in 2004 and Al Gore, and, and, and obviously George W. Bush did that as well. Now, we're speaking with Joe Klein, the book's Politics Lost, and uh, speaking of Al Gore and John Kerry and John Edwards, 
they have said that they'll never again let consultants uh, run their campaigns the way they have in the past. Do you take them at their word at that, or yeah, are they, they all say that. or did their consultants tell them to say that? Well, yeah. you know, well, my great fear is that all over Washington, people, uh, politicians are reading this book and summoning their consultants in and saying, hey, we're going to have to plan a spontaneous moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, let's plan, some, let's plan some authenticity here. Um, but, you know, let me, just, let me just say, and then I'll get back to your question, that politics lost. You know, people say that it's about the need for authenticity among our politicians, and that's, and that's true, but it's more about something else. It's about the need for courage. Mm among our politicians. Um, you know, the, the, the most important develop, development over these last 40 years is not just that politicians have lost their faith in the people, but they've lost their faith in themselves. You know, if, if Al Gore wanted to talk about, wanted to make global warming a central theme of his campaign in 2000, um, he lost, the, and, his, and his consultants were telling him, don't do it, don't do it, people don't care about that. He didn't have enough faith in himself to say to his consultants, get lost. I'm doing the campaign I want to do. And, uh, and as a result, you know, he came across as a, as, a, as a real stiff. And the problem is this. Both Al Gore, John Edwards, John Kerry, all of them say that, they, that, that if they run again, they're not going to use consultants the same way they did the last time. The question is, can you use intelligent, consultants intelligently? I have a chapter in Politics Lost about all the mavericks whom I fall for every time. I'm just a sucker for rogues. Uh, but none of them ever win, in part because they're not disciplined enough. They're impolitic. They speak English as opposed to many other politicians, and they're really exciting, but they don't have the middle distance to understand what works, what doesn't, and how far they can go. And consultants ideally will tell you that. You need to have polling to understand where the public is on issues uh, so that when you decide to... Uh, defy public opinion on an issue, if you have the courage to do that, you know exactly what you're up against. So I think that for Al Gore, who's now apparently seriously thinking about running in 2008, the question is whether he can modulate, whether he can, you know, use uh, consultants the right way, as Bill Clinton did, um, or, um, or the wrong way, as he did, as, as Gore himself did the first time. Um. I just want to interject here that I do have some political um, consulting background in my in my resume, and uh, I will tell you uh, one of my first uh, sort of jolts of reality. I was, I was involved in running a, a congressional campaign a few years ago, and uh, there was some talk about hiring James Carville to come aboard, and uh, he was going to be you know an outrageous amount of money per month, and the, the talk was I mean we, there's no way we could afford it, but. Having James Carville on your campaign attracts money to your campaign. Right, exactly. So you may be spending $25,000 a month for James Carville, but you're going to get fifty or sixty or or $100,000 a month by virtue of the fact that he's in your campaign. So there's a strong temptation, a very strong temptation on the part of politicians to bring in these people who do this sort of modulating of these candidates because it's it makes economic and political sense to do so and that I think you would talk a little bit about this sort of political industrial complex that's going that that uh, that takes place here well and 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 there's a party difference um you know and in fact I'd be curious about your why you think this is so but the democratic party tends to regard consultants as ra- as rock stars consultants bring as you said James Carville brings credibility to any campaign that he's part of but that is far less true on the republican side right. where 
consultants are see, uh, seen as employees. Yeah. You know, on the Democratic side, a consultant is paid much more money, gets a percentage of the advertising buy, right. uh, the television buy, whereas Republicans pay their consultants a flat fee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is an imbalance, I think, that's grown up out of the following problem. It's grown up grown out of uh, uh, a real um, political problem, an ideological problem that Democrats have had. Ever since Ronald Reagan, the Republicans have known what they stood for, and they could do it in simple sentences. Strong military, low taxes, traditional values. The Democrats have been the party of the compound sentence, and they've held positions that are inconvenient, uh, often honorable, um, you know, certainly their, you know, their support for the civil rights movement in the 60s, which cost them the entire South and changed the nature of American politics, was entirely honorable. But they feel that they need consultants to kind of finesse the issues uh, where they're on the wrong side of the polls. And, uh, and that has proven to be a disaster for the Democrats. Yeah, well, I, I, we could. This is a long discussion on on my side because it it, it there is I, I I know what you're saying. I, I've I've seen it. I've heard it. Um, and it you can go back to to the point which is that uh, the Democrats feel that that life itself is a complex uh, set of issues, and that in order to really fully understand the way to govern is for the public to understand what, exactly what we're talking about. Well, you in know, order to educate one of, and one of the formulations I came up with when yeah. I was writing Politics Lost, and it kind of just popped into my mind, but it's so yeah. true, is Republicans are public optimists because they're private realists or pessimists. Yeah. Uh, you know, things are great in this country, it's the greatest country in the world, and so on and so forth, um, all of which is, you know, pretty true. Um, you know, it is the greatest country in the world. But they feel that way because they, conservatives essentially don't believe that human, the human, uh, human beings are improvable. They believe that we are what we are, and that's it. And mm-hmm. so you might as well not try. Mm-hmm. Democrats are publicly pessimistic um, because they're privately optimistic. Mm-hmm. You know, things aren't ever as good as they could be in this country for Democrats mm-hmm. because they believe that, you know, human life is improvable if we act, you know, communally for the, so, for, for the greater yeah. good. Yeah, the march of humanity. Right. And so it, is, it makes it hard in a media era where yeah. you're dealing in very quick... Um, and simple messages to convey a concept that is a that is as elusive as the need for community. And I, I guess when we get to kind of a post uh, media uh, um, age, when you get past this point of being the, everything being filtered by the media, you will see a, a, a triumphalism among uh, Democrats. I think if what what we're saying is sort of the arc of this is that once we get past uh, uh, just sitting in front of a television being told by pundits what it is that we're hearing and seeing, you will maybe see a resurgence in, in democratic politics. Or well, democratic. one of the reasons why, in fact, the main reason why I wrote Politics Now, uh, Politics Lost Now, okay. is because I think we're coming to that, that moment. Yeah. I think that the American people now know what market-tested language sounds like. If a politician comes to you and says, rather than a policy of family values, we need policies that value families, <laughs> you know that that's baloney. Yeah, you yeah. know that there isn't a human being on the planet who actually speaks that way. Yeah. And so I think that the public has become far more skeptical. Another development is that we're moving from the age of television hegemony into a television-slash-internet age where conversation is going to be more important than speechifying, where, uh, you know, candidates are going to have to be interactive. And so 
I have proposed a new test of credibility for politicians in presidential (laughs) politics. And and Politics Lost is almost entirely about presidential politics. It's this. You know, in the past, we journalists, um, we're not brilliant, and so we try and determine credibility by things you can count. You know, how much money has the person raised? What's their poll numbers? How many endorsements do they have? Well, my new test is going to be this. Is this candidate telling me something inconvenient? Mm-hmm. Is this candidate challenging me uh, in any way, shape, or form? Is this candidate challenging his or her base in any way, shape, or form? And if they're not, they don't have any credibility with me. I want to remind good. our listeners that we're speaking with Joe Klein, the author of Politics Lost, How American Democracy Was Trivialized by People Who Think You're Stupid. Uh, let's go back uh, to a point in your political life that you, uh, you a, a, a touchstone for, for you, which was, the speech that Robert Kennedy gave the night that we all found out that uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Uh, you, you well, I don't believe the crowd knew yet. No, that no, no. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm just saying, I'm sorry. I put that wrong. But <laughs> yeah. then, And, and uh, that speech that he gave, was, I believe, was in Indianapolis uh, the night uh, that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Go ahead, t- talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I was a senior in college when this happened. Kennedy was just starting his presidential campaign. Yeah. And uh, he was supposed to have a rally in the uh, in the black neighborhood in Indianapolis that night. He lands in Indianapolis. He's told by the police chief that Martin Luther King has been assassinated, um, and 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 uh, that he shouldn't go into the ghetto, and that the police won't protect him if he goes into the ghetto because they're going to be protecting the white areas of the city. Um, he doesn't have Secret Service protection, and his staff um, advises him not to go in, uh, but he goes in anyway. And since this was, you know, the, these were the days before cell phones. I know it's hard for some younger people to believe <laughs> that there were such days. Uh-huh. But, but the crowd didn't know. The crowd didn't know that King had been assassinated. And uh, one of Kennedy's young aides, Adam Walensky, tries to hand him some notes, you know, so, you know a speech text. And Kennedy just sweeps them away and, and says, I'm going to use my own words tonight. And he gets up and he announces... And Martin Luther King has been killed, and you hear these shrieks of anguish from the audience. And then for the next four and a half minutes, he very calmly speaks to them in a way that politicians don't anymore. And at the climax of the speech, he quotes his favorite poet, the Greek, the classical Greek poet Aeschylus, about pain which falls upon the heart drop by drop until in our sleep wisdom comes through the awful grace of God. Now, that speech could never be given today for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, Kennedy would have too much information about the crowd. Um, you know, one of the things that made that speech great was the kind of creative innocence of the human interaction. Now he'd know that 68% of the Baptists in the crowd were opposed to gay marriage, and 43% of the women thought that health care was the biggest issue, and uh, all kinds of data points like that. And then there would be like six phrases that they had culled from, uh, the consultants had culled from their focus groups about that might work with an inner-city black audience. And, oh, and by the way, forget about this Aeschylus crap. I mean, you know, whoever, you know Aeschylus would never survive a focus group. Um, and uh, and I think that that, in a nutshell, is the possibility of humanity, the possibility of courage, mm-hmm. is what we've lost. Yeah, well, and, it, and it's also the the candidate challenging the audience. I mean, it's, it's a situation there where where, where Kennedy <laughs> went went beyond what what could have been a uh, uh, this kind of a 
a, a somber moment into a challenging moment. Yeah, it was. In fact, I, I we have a program here that, and I played that speech not that long ago. Um, and it's a, it's it's stunning, isn't it? it? It's a beautiful speech. It's absolutely so heartfelt because in it he talks about we we've we've we can hate each other in this moment. We have an opportunity now to move forward. I've lost a member of my family to right. an assassin's bullet. Yeah. We all I can understand where we're all coming from. It's a beautiful speech. It's absolutely. I mean, it, it, I'm getting choked up thinking about it because oh, no, I don't remember. It. No, I'm serious. I it's know. a beautiful speech, and and it was well, done from the heart, and that's what we. That's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think that the first of all, the, the the presidency of the United States is different from any other office. It's a more personal office. You're inviting somebody into your home for the next four years. You know, the president lives in your kitchen and your TV room, and in for a lot of us, we have TVs in our bedroom, and. Um, and so it's the office is far more about character than it is about your position on any given policy. Yeah. Uh, Republicans have pretty much understood that, and Democrats have not. Uh, but, you know, to the extent that these consultants convince politicians not to show their humanity in public, um, to that extent we are deprived, you know, the public is deprived of, of figuring out who the best person to vote for might be. Yeah. We're speaking with Joe Klein, and the book is politics lost. Um, do you think, on account of the consultants, do you think the candidates themselves have become less intelligent? Are they going for a different grade of candidate these days? Well, I think, you know, it's, it, it's hard to say. I think that, that um, there are an awful lot of candidates who've gotten away with being incredibly lazy, you know, who, uh, who tell consultants, and you hear this from consultants all the time, tell me what I believe. You know, yeah. <laughs> tell me what my heartfelt feelings are. Tell me what's important. Um, and, you know, so there's an awful lot of mediocrity out there, but there has always been an awful lot of mediocrity. When you look at the, you know, the history of the presidency, it's been marked by mediocrity and with, with an occasional genius thrown in here and there. And luckily for us as a nation, the geniuses have managed to pop up at difficult, difficult moments, like Lincoln during the Civil War and Franklin Roosevelt during the Depression. This is. Uh, I'm going to throw in some more about my political background as a consultant. I, I will tell you, it, we've got to have campaign finance reform. There has got to be a workable formula for all of us uh, that makes sense that we can live by. All whatever you want to say about it, because as a consultant, the first question I ask a candidate, the very first question, you know what it is: How much money do you have? Right, and that well, and that dictates what? everything. That dictates uh, if, whether or not you think he's going to win or not, and and that's unfortunately the way it is today. And I disagree, you know, I disagree with you. I'll tell you why. why is that? First of all, um, they're always going to be able to find ways around the system. Um, we've had campaign finance re- reform up the wazoo, and unless you go directly to public financing, um, which you would have to, which you would need a constitutional amendment to do. Because you know, First Amendment freedom, uh, freedom of speech, you you know, would uh, would be denied if 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 you had public financing, uh, unless you go to that, there really isn't uh, a fix. Free air time. Second, second <laughs> is this: that my suspicion is that you know that, and and consultants have said this to me, that the marginal utility of television advertising is diminishing greatly because of the wonderful this wonderful new invention, the clicker. People just click right past these stupid ads. And you might have one or two that'll cut through. You know, in 2004, the ad that really cut through was John Kerry saying to camera, I voted for the $87 billion for the Iraq War before I voted against it. Now, that was an extraordinary moment. 
and the Bush campaign followed up on it with the Swift, uh, with the um, the. Um, uh, the windsurfing ad uh, that that confirmed that he was a, a flip floppy kind of guy, um, but for the most part, I think that the public has you know your standard bio ad you know with the smiling children and four million you know teeth and yeah. uh, and, and 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 several pounds of hair and stuff. <laughs> um, I think that that's over. Hey, I know that candidate and. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, what we're talking, and also, uh, you're talking a little bit about when we were talking earlier about sort of the post-modern age of of politics and pol- and getting your message across. We're seeing some of that with uh, with the Daily Show and the Colbert Report, aren't we? Isn't that yeah. sort of the yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and I think that um, you know, I, I I really, I and, and and I think that the other thing that's adding to it is this. Um, it's taken a while for this to sink in, and it hasn't sunk in totally, but things changed after September 11th. And, you know, when you have over 70% of the people saying that the country's moving in the wrong direction, and you have the president absent a major scandal at 31% in the polls. Yeah, today 31%. You know, people understand that we're facing some serious issues. Yeah. Last week was just a wonderful week for me in, in Washington. It was a very optimistic week because both parties tried to bribe the American people on, uh, on uh, gasoline prices, and the American people just laughed in their face. Yeah. Um, I'll give you 100. You know, no, I'll give you know. 500, right? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just say one party says, I'll give you 100, and the other one says, I'll give you 500. <laughs> Right. right. I mean, it's you know, it's silly, and I, yeah. and I think that while people may not know that they're going to have to pay still higher gasoline prices if we're going to you know if we're going to be able to transform this system, um, they do know bribery when they see it. Yeah. Well, Joe Klein, uh, you know, I'm I'm so sorry we we have really exhausted our time here on on Weekly Signals, but I want to say once again. The author uh, or the book is Politics Lost: How American Democracy Was Trivialized by People Who Think You Are Stupid, and the author is Joe Klein. Joe Klein, thank you for being on Weekly Signals. My pleasure. Oh, Thanks, t- guys. You take pleasure. care. Thank, thank you. you very okay. Bye. 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 To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.